Welcome to Faith and Family, a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. And now from Greenville, South Carolina, here's your host, Steve Wood. Hello, this is Steve Wood, and welcome to Faith and Family. Thank you for joining us today for our concluding episode in the series that we've been doing on the Holy Spirit. Today's show is entitled, The Spirit of Glory. And before I get to the Spirit of Glory, though, I'd like to review for you just a few of the highlights we've gone through in this series. First of all, we are all, especially our children, facing the challenge of living in a wicked culture. And in one of the last sermons that Jesus preached, he mentions that as wickedness increases, love grows cold. So what's the solution to living in such a secular culture? Well, it's that strong, transforming presence of the Holy Spirit in our hearts to keep love alive and aflamed and not growing cold. Related to that, number two, is the challenge for the second generation of believers. St. Paul had written to Timothy to fan that flame of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is given every child of God as he or she is baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But many of us have a need, not just once, but repeatedly to fan that flame, to bring it alive, seek God and asking him for a continual filling of the Holy Spirit. Third, I mentioned this is a huge topic, but I mentioned why the Holy Spirit needs to be at the center of every chastity message. Why? Well, we learn from Galatians that if you depend upon your own strength to live a moral life, you actually may end up increasing sinful activities rather than decreasing them. The dependence has to be on the Holy Spirit enabling us to live a new life. And if that isn't taught in a primary fashion, then our efforts can actually compound the problem. Fourth, the Holy Spirit experience is not a flamboyant emotional experience, despite what you see on some TV channels. As I mentioned, you can be an introvert, an intellectual, or a combination of both, and have a vibrant Holy Spirit living presence in your life. And I gave to you exhibit A of this was Pope Benedict XVI, is a living example. I think he's an introvert. I know he's an intellectual. And I also know from his sermons at the World Youth Day in Sydney, which are widely available on the internet, that he was a man deep in the Holy Spirit. And he was also a man led by God to encourage young people to avail themselves of the power of the Holy Spirit. And finally, but very important, in the first century Roman Catholic Church, there was a universal experiential realization from the Holy Spirit that God's love had, had been poured into the human heart of former pagans, some Jewish believers, 
But regardless of the background, there is an immediate inward assurance of being God's child. And you might say my entire series here on the Holy Spirit is really advocating a return to that early Catholic normative experience because it's the key for a strong spiritual formation of your children in the modern world. Now let's talk about the spirit of glory, but first I'd like to tell you of a rather surprising personal story. A couple of years ago, I had a call totally out of the blue. I don't even know how the man got my phone number from an attorney in Connecticut saying that um, there was some money he thought I was due. And I was thinking, okay, this is like that email that everybody got a few years back that a a Saudi Arabian prince had $25,000 to send you. If you just send $500 to somebody, he'll send you $25,000. And I hope nobody responded to that email. And I kind of think this was was the same thing. But evidently, uh, as he started talking, I remembered that I did have a great uncle and a great aunt that used to live in Connecticut. And it seemed that she had a very modest estate that had been passed on to her side of the family and that the will had made no provision for if the family line would cease, and evidently it did. And so they were looking for the wood side of the family line, and only my sister and I were the last living relatives. And so we got a fairly shocking and surprising modest inheritance from my great aunt, who had died, um, I'm thinking, four or five decades before I got this telephone call out of the blue. Now, that was a big surprise, even though it was a modest inheritance, but I want to tell you about a big surprise with an extremely large inheritance, one that's so large that I totally lack words to describe it to you but I'm just going to read it to you right out of St. Paul's letter to the first Roman Catholics and his epistle to the Romans when he talked about the Holy Spirit in chapter 8, starting in verse 15. He says, You have received the spirit of sonship when we cry, Abba, Father. So the Holy Spirit is bringing us this realization, stark realization, immediate realization that we're children of God. Verse 16, it's the Spirit himself bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. We're not just kind of sort of or some theological category or, I mean, this is a reality. This is supposed to be the primal reality in a Christian's life. And then verse 17, this is where it gets really incredible. And if children If you and I, baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, believing in Jesus Christ, if children, St. Paul says, then heirs. Did you hear that? Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. (laughs) I can't describe this other than The Father is going to give Christ glory and majesty and royalty and kingdom and everything else 
beyond any human description. Read the last few chapters of the Bible, and St. John just starts going into describing things I can't even imagine, or read the first few chapters of Ezekiel when he was taken up into the throne room. But I'll say this. Say if you're a mom listening right now, and your seven-year-old is in the kitchen uh, in his jeans and T-shirt and having a cookie and milk right now, if you would see your seven-year-old son in glory, I would tell you that within a second, you would not just be on your knees, you would be on your face tempted to worship your son with all the greatness that God had just bestowed on him. The one that came closest to describing this in words, I can't describe it in words, is C.S. Lewis, who said that we would be tempted to worship our neighbor Christian if we saw him in glory. And this is what it's saying, is that the idea of the Holy Spirit, when it comes and gives you that immediate sense of the love of God, this awakens something in the innermost parts of our being that this this is why I was made. This is my eternal destiny. This is something that's so beyond any human conception. And, you know, it's slightly theological speculation, but why did Satan get all uptight about human beings? Because he was the greatest being in creation. Glory from no end. And then God goes and forms us out of the dirt and makes us and forms us into his image and brings life into us and eventually sends his son to assume human nature so that by covenant we might be joined with him, so that everything that the second person of the Trinity enjoys, we are joint heirs. That means (laughs) 50-50. And when you're talking about an infinite God, omniscient God, that he, he just bestows things on us beyond description, That's what the Holy Spirit is giving you just a tiny pinch of when you have that assurance in your heart and cry out, Abba, Father, because that's our homecoming beacon. That's what we are made for, and it's great glory. Sound good? Okay. With that, I have an admission to make. I try not to pull punches here on Faith and Family. You might have picked that up. I believe as much as God gives me an ability to tell the truth, but consciously last week, I pulled a punch. I didn't tell you about an important context to these verses in Romans 8 we've been talking about. When the Holy Spirit comes, the spirit of sonship, and we cry, Abba, Father. I just got done talking to you about that we're fellow heirs or joint heirs with Christ, but now I need to tell you the last half of the verse. It says, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Suffering with Christ. The next verse, verse 18 says, I consider the suffering of this present time is not worth comparing with the glory to be revealed in us. I'll say this as simply as I can. The Christian life 
isn't pretend kind of thinking about or hearing something and nodding our heads to it. The Christian life is about having the living presence of the glorious God dwelling within us. And if God's presence through the Holy Spirit is truly in us, in other words, God is truly in us, therefore, in this age, until the second coming of Christ, we will be treated like Jesus because he lives in us. He's really living in us. Uh, This is as simple as it gets. It's Jesus, as John records in chapter 15 and verse 20, Jesus says, Remember the word I said to you? A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Now, John 15 is talking about abiding in the vine. In other words, we have this strong union, this organic union with Christ, with the Holy Trinity, by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's real. It's not pretend. And it's nourished every time we partake of the Blessed Eucharist. But God's presence in us will stir up the same hatred in the world that Christ's presence in the world during the first century stirred up. Now, I know this sounds so odd to ears here in the United States because, you know, religious persecution, you know, we've we've had it pretty easy. And I speak for myself, become very soft as a result of it. It's almost, this is almost incomprehensible. But, you know, this is to be the norm. It's the norm right now for people living in North Korea. My goodness, have you read any of the accounts of the suffering that a Christian has to endure in North Korea prisons, in other countries around the world, of Muslim countries around the world? St. Peter, our first pope, said in his first epistle, chapter 4 and verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal which comes upon you to prove you, as though something strange were happening to you. You see, the thing that's strange is that we've not had any significant persecution here in the United States for so long. The normal Christian experience is persecution. He goes on, but it's not something strange, but he says in verse 13, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you also may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory of God rests upon you. You see, you might ask yourself, how in the world would you expect me to get through fierce state-sponsored persecution? I'm not talking about somebody making a joke about me at work or looking at me kind of funny because I'm a Christian and don't laugh at a bad joke or something like that. And I'm not saying those things are easy to put up with. I'm talking about full-on the boot of the state upon your neck and upon the necks of your family members because of your belief in Christ. How are you going to stand up to that? How am I going to stand up for that? Here is the danger. There's only one danger, and that's the danger we've been talking about this whole series, both through 
the Holy Spirit series, and the series before that I did on transformative parenting. If we depend on our own strength, I predict we fall flat on our faces. And there's not a better example than our first Pope, Peter, who learned a very hard lesson, who said that in his own strength, he would never deny Christ and ended up being terrified because a maiden ID'd him in a crowd and having known Christ. And he denied Jesus three times. You know, and some of you are going to think this is odd, but uh, I, I never signed the Manhattan Declaration. And it's certainly not because I disagreed with any of the contents regarding the sanctity of life, the sanctity of marriage, uh, the yearning for religious freedom here in this country. You know, I, that's 100%. There's no problem there. But the reason I didn't sign is because um, I think deep within, at least I am, a coward. I don't think on my own strength, if it really came down to it, I could face down the state. I participated in Operation Rescue for a while, and um, that's not anything compared to what people in other countries have gone through just this past century. But it was pretty scary. And what made me nervous about the Manhattan Declaration was this sentence, uh, which says, we Christians who have joined together, that no power on earth, be it cultural or political, will intimidate us into silence or acquiescence. Now, that last statement actually terrifies me because you really don't know how much courage you have until you get in a situation of state-sponsored persecution, loss of freedom, loss of material goods, loss of your bank account, loss of your home, and maybe even loss of life itself, and maybe your children along with you. And I believe there are people who did sign the Manhattan Declaration, particularly leaders, uh, who will stand up. But it's not because there's no power on earth that's going to make us bend. Yeah, they can make you bend. I'll just tell you this. They can make you bend. The same Peter who, when a, a little maid called him, he, he's, he's with the Nazarene denied Christ three times. We read in Acts 2, just a little time later, this same exact man stands up in a city packed with Jewish believers from all over the world. So it was like, you know, population doubling and delivers a fearless, pointed, power-packed sermon that results in 3,000 conversions out of one sermon. What made the difference? How come Peter moved from a three-times denier of Christ in a low-level persecution to the potential of losing his very life, and he stands up and 3,000 are converted? You know what the difference is? Pentecost. 
because Peter had experienced the reality and the fullness of the Holy Spirit in his life, and it made him a changed man, from a coward to a man who would stand up in front of an entire city of people who could have easily as crucified him as they did Jesus Christ just a short time before. What makes the difference is the Holy Spirit. Now, we need to learn that when things get rough, we, well, not just when things get rough, that's actually off. For every moment of our Christian life, as well, and especially when things get rough, we need to depend on the Holy Spirit. Jesus said this in Luke 21, and listen carefully. He says, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be a time for you to bear testimony. Now, Luke 21, 14, this is real important. He says, settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. Now, I must say, for me, this would be the hardest thing I can imagine doing because I believe that you're supposed to prepare before you give important talks. And you definitely depend on the Holy Spirit to guide you with the thought to kind of get you going in a direction. You depend on the Holy Spirit to prepare that. And then you depend on the Holy Spirit for the delivery but here Jesus says, no, all you have to do is keep yourself out of the way. Settle it in your minds. Don't meditate what you're going to say. Why? Because the Holy Spirit will give you the words to say in that hour. And they will be words with such power that will result in who knows what. But in God's will being done. In other words, in persecution, we don't want to get in the way of the Holy Spirit with our own strength. Uh, some people puzzled, you know, why did the women and children do such a good job when they were tossed to the lions in the Colosseum? Because they were scared to death. They knew they didn't have the strength to face down what was coming. But they did have hearts that could make them with backbones of steel and courage in the face of death because of the Holy Spirit. Men might have a little harder time because they might think, I'm going to go this alone. I can handle this. No, you can't. Believe me, the state can come up with things to terrify you to the core of your being. And at that moment, we don't depend on ourselves. We depend on the Holy Spirit. Now, I want to talk just for a second a surprising facet that may spring up in the new evangelization. The new evangelization, a great idea. A lot more people need to know Christ. A lot more people have to have their faith in Christ revived. I'm going to read one verse from the book of Revelation, chapter 6 and verse 9, where it says, He opened the fifth seal, and I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain, killed, persecuted for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. In order for 
evangelization to take place, and you all kinds of books and sermons and broadcast on the new evangelization has gone out, you need to bear witness. Do you know what that word witness is in Greek? I'm going to share it with you, just the Greek pronunciation, and you're going to guess what it means. The word for witness for which they lost their lives and were slain is martyria. You see, to bear witness is to be a witness unto death and to give your life as a martyr, our English word coming from that word martyria. And you see, when the time comes when it really gets hot, and they think they're going to stamp out the face of Christianity, and martyria starts, martyrdom starts, that will be a time of witness, you see, by the strength of the Holy Spirit, that it's just like um, swatting a bee that's flying around a nest, and all of a sudden, you know, a thousand bees are all of a sudden buzzing everywhere. This is what happened to Roman Empire. They tried to stamp it out, and with the witness, the Holy Spirit empowered witness, they prevailed. You know, the, the words that um, I have probably repeated in the new Faith and Family broadcast from Romans 5.5 are probably the most important I've given you through the entire Holy Spirit series, through the entire transformative parenting series, and it comes from Romans 5.5, where it says, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, which has been given to us. That is primary in the spiritual formation of yourself, your children, for all catechesis, for preparation for good times and for bad times. And you know, St. Paul in Romans 8, after he talked about that spirit of sonship, he asked the question, he says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? He goes, no, there's nothing in all creation that will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, once you have this anchor for your soul, and this is what the Holy Spirit's witness is, bringing the assurance and the awareness and the immediacy of the love of God to the human heart, nothing is able to separate you from the love of God. Now, we don't have open state persecution like occurred shortly after, started shortly after Paul wrote Romans, went on for two and a half centuries. We do have seduction, and it's either seduction or persecution. It's always one of the two. And the Holy Spirit is always our friend to keep us bound by the love of God in the depths of our being to Jesus Christ. This has been episode 31 of Faith and Family. Till next time, this is Steve Wood. Faith and Family is a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. Visit us online at familylifecenter.net. To order a CD copy of today's broadcast, order online at www.familylifecenter.net.